HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we're celebrating bakers who are successful entrepreneurs with a commitment to lift one another up as part of their mission. We travel to Michigan to meet Amy Emberling, one of the founding bakers at Zingerman's Bakehouse in Ann Arbor. Zingerman's family of businesses are known for their mission to invest in community and create new culinary entrepreneurs. We'll also speak with Zingerman's Bakehouse alum, Shelby Kibler, founder of Field and Fire Bakery and Cafe in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But first, let's head to Chicago and welcome Tamara Turner, the Chief Everything Officer of Silver Spoons Desserts. Tamara, welcome to Eat Your Heartland Out. I have to say, before we get into this conversation, having spoken to you before, you and your story is one of the most inspiring. Anybody that wants to get into business, anybody that's scared of following a dream or a hunch or an instinct, you are a story that people need to know because you've proven um, that if you put your mind to something, you can do it. And that's why we're so excited to have you on the program. Absolutely. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, Silver Spoons desserts. Uh, you know, most people that, some people at least, when they start a, a bakery operation may have been, you know, uh, trained or went to culinary school, but that wasn't your, your path wasn't as linear as that, was it? <laughs> no way. Um, <laughs> these were family recipes that I've had all my life, you know, I baked them. I gave them away. You know, they were my everything, my go-to. And I just finally figured out the code and I cracked it saying, okay, I can do this. What made you think you could do it and, and turn a, you know, baking for fun, baking for family and friends uh, into um, actually turning it into a business that, as we'll talk about in a minute, has really skyrocketed in a short amount of time. 
Yeah. And, you know, I never knew I couldn't do it. You know, it was just so weird. And, you know, I had been in 2017 at that crossroad, you know, I'm 45 years old and it was like, okay, God, what else am I supposed to be doing with my life? This can't be it. I was working at a barbecue restaurant, helping him build and grow and manage his business. So I started asking in early 2017, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? You know, that question. Mm -hmm. But it was July 25th on 2017 at 4.30 in the morning, I heard the voice, which I'm going to call the voice of God, giving me clear directions to do the cakes first. And as I said, these are family recipes. And it was like, okay. So it took me one week to find the name, the plate, the spoon, the logo. And I just went for it. You know, I didn't know I was going to blow up this fast, but I just started. How do you start? I mean, how did you put one foot in front of the other? I mean, you just jumped into it, created that logo, like you said, and, and you had this in, in sort of almost divine intervention. But it's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to actually implement it, which is, I think, where a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes stumble. And, you know, apparently not you. <laughs> so how it started was... I just had to get started. It was like, okay, let's start baking these cakes. And I said, okay, who can I sell these to? Where's the best place? So knowing my neighborhood Portillo's restaurants, they never sold carrot cakes. So I took a box of carrot cakes. I didn't make an appointment. I just made a box of cakes. I packaged them up. I put a note to the buyer saying, hey, share these with eight of your closest friends and call me and let me know what you think. I dropped it off at the front desk. No appointment. He called me in one hour and he says, hey, um, these are the best high quality cakes we've ever tasted. We need more information on your company. I didn't have a company. I had a product. The same day, I did the same thing for Gate Gourmet, the airline catering company. And I took the same box of cakes, but these were chocolate, carrot, and, and lemon. And the next day, the buyer calls. He says, the airlines are going to love you. American Airlines wants to see you first. I just started. I mean, I didn't know where it was going. I just started. You showed up without, you know, anything but a product, which obviously spoke for itself. So just right out of the gate, you know, you are uh, getting in front of the folks in your neighborhood restaurants and then Gate Gourmet, which, you know, if people are not familiar, um, is a caterer for a number of, of major airlines. You mentioned American. Um, and you, you ended up meeting with American, right? So after he told me that he, he said, American airlines wants to see you first. I sat down with the design chef. He taught me how to scale the cake smaller. He taught me how to make them halal suitable. So all religions could eat them. You know, he taught me the little things that I didn't know. This is my first rodeo. How am I going to know that? So right. We kept going and we went through the process. And in November of 2017, he says, hey, we'd like to offer you the Chicago to London brunch route, 960 cakes a week, but we need to see your facility. I didn't have a facility. I had nothing. I, and I said, oh, OK, you know what? You know, I'm working on it. You know, I'll get back to you. So fast forward to 2021, they remembered me. They called and they said, hey, we're putting cakes back on board. Do you want it? Do you want to know about this opportunity? Wow. So it was learning and growing and be being ready to receive the opportunity is how it happened. 
Right. So what happened between 2017 and 2021 for you? What, what, what was your growth? And obviously we recognize, you know, the pandemic caused, you know, all kinds of different disruptions, but what was your path between, you know, 2017 and 20, that 2021 call? So the biggest things that happened, I was learning and growing and understanding manufacturing. I was mm-hmm. winning business plan pitch competitions. I won three of them, you know, and I it was 50 grand. It was like, wow. That's huge. Yeah. It was life changing. So I was getting my name out there. I was doing little events. I was doing caterings. I was doing weddings, you know, just little small stuff. And right. then in 2019, I moved into a shared kitchen and I got my mm-hmm. first contract with 1-800-Flowers. Also not, also not a small company that has lots of demand. <laughs> yeah. So... That was good. We had, we ended up with nine cakes and 1-800-Flowers platform, you know, every season, every holiday we did them. And I am very grateful to them because they kept me in business during COVID. Everybody Mm. was ordering online. So that's right. It helped. You know, at first I thought, oh my God, we're going to have to shut down because of COVID. But no, it was just the opposite. Right. Well, I, you know, I, you're right that, uh, with a lot of folks, quote, pivoting uh, to online, but that's what 1-800-Flowers business model really is. So you you definitely um, were in a good position there. So before I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about what happened, you know, um, with American Airlines. But before that, I want to pause and talk a minute about your product. You mentioned a couple different flavors and the scalability, but it's not just a, a slice of cake. No, no, not at all. We do, for a 1-800-Flowers, we did a four-inch, three-layer cake with sprinkles mm-hmm. and a border and a cute little box. So we did that. I mean, we did that hundreds and thousands of cakes to the point where I had to have surgery on my rotator cuff because I probably frosted by hand a half a million cakes. Oh, <laughs> God bless you. Yeah. So we also have an array of products for the airlines. For American, we currently do a chocolate and a vanilla bunt cake. Mm-hmm. We have baby cakes. We have cake pops. We have pretzel, chocolate-covered pretzels. We have chocolate cups filled with cream cheese mousse, fruit cups. I mean, we have a lot of products that have just been coming to light now that we're here. Mm-hmm. So how uh, how have you incrementally built those those products? Um, how do you make those decisions going from mini bunt cakes to cake pops, or you know, uh, including some of these other type of products um, and making it scalable so you're able to do so many units of so many different things? Right. The biggest thing is being able to know who my customer is and talking mm-hmm. and presenting those said products, and they choose. You know, I only show them what we can do in-house. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do an upside-down chocolate eclair. You know, I'm not going to do it because we it's it's time-consuming. You know what I mean? So I have to be conscious of labor as well as can my team do it? Do I have the equipment to do it? You know, will it fit in my current packaging? You know, all those things come into play. Right. And speaking of your team, how... How big has your team grown from? I mean, obviously you are the chief everything officer for a reason, but you got to have a little bit of help too. Yeah. So I started, when we started 1-800-Flowers, it was two of us. And now we're at 20. Wow. And that's what, in just five years, four and a half, five years? 
with with two years of COVID and, and serious, uh, yep. you know, contention there. Exactly. And, you know, we were producing 500 to 1,000 cakes in order before, and now we're producing 15,000 cakes a day. So Ooh. it's different. Like, like, for instance, last year, we baked and shipped 2.2 million cakes with, oh for goodness. the first time, first year in a really big business. Yeah. Wow. So who are your major, who are your major accounts, um, so to speak at this My point? My major, major is American Airlines. Mm-hmm. I have one, two, three other airlines. We haven't signed a contract, so I really don't want to say. Of course, of course. We have other Fortune 500 companies. So right now on my board, there's eight different opportunities that are mm-hmm. in various stages. And once we get through the next three, we need a new facility. We're out of space. Goodness. <laughs> well, that's a good pro- that's a good problem to have. I, I so since uh, American Airlines is is your your primary client, uh, I know you've been uh, to American to to their corporate headquarters, I believe, and and to a board meeting. I'd love to hear about that. Oh yeah. So before we got the contract signed, and after all the samples were done. We, I was down there and he's like, Hey, it was the director of flight services. He goes, Hey, we've never done this and we're doing it now. He goes, we'd like to invite you to the senior executive board meeting, July 12th of 2021 or something like that. I said, Oh, okay, sure. He goes, bring some cakes, you know, just, you know, kind of show off a little bit. So I have a video that it's like a sizzle reel. They played it in front of 65 of their leaders. Mm-hmm. I got a standing ovation and I was there with my son. We come oh. out, they had a receiving line. Everybody's just like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, welcome, welcome. You know, whatever you need, we'll help you. And the last person out was the CEO. He came out, shook our hands and he said, welcome on board. That's when I knew I made it. Well, that's um, a good way to know that you made it. When the CEO of American Airlines says, welcome aboard, uh, it's not just when you're on the jet, you're crossing more than the jet bridge. You are crossing into a new dimension with your business. Uh, what keeps you inspired um, to continue to go? I mean, new opportunities, obviously, but you know, people could just get comfy and say, well, I got American Airlines. I got 1-800-Flowers. I didn't even know this was going to be a thing. Now it's a thing and, and kick back. But that's obviously not not you. No, not at all. And what keeps me inspired more than anything is my team and being Mm -hmm. able to hire single mothers, which is my passion, at a living wage. You know, Mm. the minimum wage in Chicago is 15. They don't make that because you can't survive on that. So being able to see them grow and to help them and know my end goal is to help these women become economically sustainable. Mm -hmm. That's what keeps me going. That's a fantastic mission, a sweeter mission, as I think I've heard you say before. Uh, and I just want to ask one more question um, from uh, when I had the honor of speaking to you the first time. I remember you talking about your spirit guides um, and your spirit guides being um, it's kind of part of your journey, keeping you going. Um, and if you'd be willing to share a little bit about how those spirit guides, uh, you know, get you get you up in the morning and and get you uh, focused for the next big thing. Yeah. So I have four spirit guides. One is my great, perfect aunt Clarice, my grandmother, Rosalie, 
The two other ones are Harriet Tubman. She keeps me in a line with her little pistol revolver to my head saying freedom is this way. I mean, and every time I get into a hard place or something, she just keep points it to my head saying freedom is this way. I can't turn back. I can't look any other way. And the other one is Rosa Parks. She stands mm. her ground. You know, she's like, yeah, okay, I'm not moving. So that gives me the courage to go on. And that's what, <laughs> that's what motivates me are those four women. Well, I can't think of any better people uh, to be uh, by your side uh, than who you've just described. Uh, Tamara, thank you for being with us and um, for sharing your incredible story. The sky is the limit, literally and figuratively for you. I cannot wait to see what you do next. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to let people know that everything is possible, period. You know, we just got to get out the way. Amen to that. Thank you. Now, I want to welcome Amy Emberling, one of the founding bakers at Zingerman's Bakehouse in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Zingerman's family of businesses are known for their mission to invest in community and create new culinary entrepreneurs. And Amy is a critical part of shaping their culture. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Capri. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I just gave my little like fangirl on Zingerman's, but I fangirled you as well um, for all the work that you've done and your interesting uh, route to your your current position, um, especially because you are originally from Nova Scotia. So how did you get from Nova Scotia to Ann Arbor, Michigan? Yeah, some people might say you can't get there from there, but it's not true. Oh. Uh, what happened was that I went to college in Boston and I um, met a man as sort of embarrassing as that is to say. And uh, he decided he wanted to go to graduate school in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, I decided I would come along. Now he became my husband. So it wasn't a total waste of time. Uh, and I came to Ann Arbor and I had, you know, I, I had finished, just finished college and I, thought, oh, I'll go to law school at some point, or I'll get a PhD in sociology. But right now, I really don't want to study anymore. And I had always loved to both cook and bake. And I love going to restaurants. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to have some fun. And I want to work in um, in a restaurant for a couple of years. And then maybe I'll go back to school. And that was the beginning of the end, Capri. And I uh, actually didn't. Or I the did beginning of the beginning, more like it. It's the beginning of the beginning. <laughs> right, right. So much more positive. Absolutely. So that's, uh, I worked in a few restaurants and I loved it. And I ended up going to cooking school and worked in another oh, couple you didn't of restaurants. Just, hold on. You didn't just go to cooking school. Tell our audience where you went to cooking school and for how long. Sure. Okay. So, you know, this was in, uh, when I started working in restaurants was 1988. And when I decided I wanted to continue to have a career in the food business, it was 1991. I had already gone to college. And so many of the great programs here in the United States, you really had to go for a couple of years and they often had associates degrees connected to them, or maybe even longer. And I didn't want to do that. I also, um, had we had already had our son who was a, a baby at the time, and so I thought, okay, well, where can I go um, that will 
I'll learn a ton, but it may not take that long. And so I decided to go to one of the cooking schools in France. And some of the listeners might remember La Varenne, which was a great school. And that's where I planned to go uh, in Paris. And about two months before I was supposed to go, they called and they said they were closing their Paris program, but I could go to Burgundy. Well, unfortunately, um, my husband had a plan to do some work at the Louvre. He was an archaeologist, a graduate student. And so he needed to be in Paris and we needed to be together to take care of our son. So that didn't happen. But the Ritz Hotel still has a really um, great program. You can take just single classes there or you could actually take certificate courses. So that's where I ended up going. And we lived in Paris for um, about seven months before we returned to Ann Arbor. But then you came back from Paris to Ann Arbor and um, found Zingerman's, right? Right. And so what, you know, I, I did return to a couple of restaurants and, you know, I thought, gosh, I don't know, maybe I'm not built for this industry. I'm not very good at not being um, treated decently and with um, some care and respect. Not unusual amount of care and respect, not a high maintenance, but just sort of what I consider normal basic human respect. And some of you may, if you've worked in restaurants, especially in the long old bad days, it could be rough places to work. But, so I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I happened to be at Zimmerman's Delicatessen. Uh, and it was, I'd say winter, spring, or I guess it was actually summer of 1992. And I don't know how I knew what one of the founders, his name is Ari Weinstein. I don't know how I knew what he looked like because we weren't all online and we didn't have Instagram accounts, but somehow I knew. And he's a pretty distinctive looking guy. He's about six, five and very slender. So I went up to him um, and I said, you know, I really love what you're doing here. I just went to cooking school. I, I don't want to make um, sandwiches, but I really respect your opinion. Where should I go and work? And he said, oh, well, my friend Frank is just about to open up a bakery. Uh, he didn't tell me he was opening up the bakery with Frank, which is sort of classic Ari and Zingerman's uh, humility. And so that's how I ended up at the bakery. And uh, there was Frank sitting at a card table uh, in a brand spanking new bakery that had never been used uh, interviewing people. And so that was as you said, the beginning of the beginning uh, at Zingerman's. To provide some context, tell the audience a little bit about Zingerman's and its history and kind of its mission too. Sure. So Zingerman's started in 1982 as um, a specialty food store and delicatessen, making incredible sandwiches. And uh, Paul Saginaw and Ari's Wines Wide, their vision of their sandwiches were that they were going to be, you know, these enormous deli sandwiches that were so sort of juicy that, you know, they would be dripping. You'd have things dripping down your forearms as you ate them. So they opened up this store. They found food from all over the world, which was happening, you know, in some places in, in New York and San Francisco as well. And um, they had a rel relatively successful run of it for about 10 years. Then they were doing well, but they thought, okay, what are we going to do next? They had many people who were working for them who wanted some kind of opportunity and growth. And they thought that, you know, the deli may continue to be successful, but they didn't really expect that it was going to grow tremendously and provide opportunity for staff, which is one of the missions of Zingerman's is to provide a work environment that allows people to develop and to, um, to learn and take on more responsibility. So that's when they came up with what I think is really one of, you know, sort of, you only need a few really great 
ideas, I believe, in most careers. And this was one of their great ideas. And it was to create the Zingerman's community of businesses. And the the idea behind the community or some of the key elements is that it would be a community of different, unique food businesses. So each one needs to be different. So not replicate, not um, be a chain, which is great in its own sake, but not what they wanted to do. And that in it would we'd all be in the Ann Arbor area, so local, really committed to the community and knowing the community that's that it's in. And that in each one of these food businesses, there would be an owner who had a particular passion about that kind of food. And so the bakehouse was opened in 1992. And then since then, I think Zingerman's mail order started in 1994. And that's yes, I, we've always gotten that catalog in the mail. <laughs> Oh, well, that's so nice. And then Zing, Zing Train, which teaches our business practices, um, started around that time, 1994. And since then, new businesses have come on. So we have a creamery that makes fresh cheeses and gelato. We have a coffee roasting business that has its own cafe. We have an all-American um, restaurant called Zingerman's Roadhouse. We have an event, kind of wedding, but other event space called Corn Man Farms. Um, Miss Kim is a Korean restaurant. I don't want to leave anyone out. They'll be mad at me. I know it's it's hard to name them all, but it just it just shows you know the the extensive nature, the diversity, but also that synergy. Um, just some examples there that you've given of how those things interconnect and how they also um, give a lot of different options to the local community as well, and obviously tools to be able to grow, like you said, with the, the business practices, for example, is something that, that you all do. So it's, this is why I'm so fascinated with Zingerman's because as I just said earlier, you know, I'm familiar, you know, as a consumer in the Midwest, we would always get the catalog in the mail. So I thought, oh, this is like one of these, it's like almost like to me, it was the gold belly before gold belly. Um, uh-huh. And I had no idea um, the the reach and the mission that Zingerman's had. So, you know, we've gone back in time. Let's fast forward um, and talk about kind of, you know, where the bakehouse is today what your, and what your role is now. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing. I've gotten old here. So um, it's been 30 years since the bakehouse opened. Oh, wow. Um, one thing that I didn't say that's really important to Zingerman, well, I said about developing people. And so of all the Zingerman's partners now, there are about 20 of us, more than half started as hourly employees. Mm. And so Jason is an example of that. And both Jason and I started as hourly employees here at the bakery. So there's really opportunity to become owner and owner if you want, if you want that. Um, so what, so we have a new owner and, uh, you know, we're looking forward. What do we, we're about to write our next five-year vision. Uh, and the other thing that we've really been working on a lot is, you know, it's a big movement in the artisan, um, bread world in particular, baking in general, to use more local grain and to use yes. more whole grain. I'm glad you brought this up because if you didn't bring it up, I was going to ask you about it. Yeah. Well, it's really, really important and it's a lot of fun too, and it's very tasty. So it kind of is good on every single level. And so what we're doing is working very hard to uh, forge connections with small local mills, with uh, local farmers. Just two weeks ago, uh, we drove about a little more than an hour and a quarter north where we met a farmer in a place in Michigan that's called Frankenmuth. It's really known for its um, its shops that sell Christmas <laughs> Oh yes, no, yeah. I, I, right. That's another thing I have to say. Growing up, driving the Ohio Turnpike, 
we would always see that billboard. So I, I've never <laughs> been there, but I know the billboard because I know exactly where it is on the Ohio Turnpike. Yeah. And so I was there, but I was not there to buy Christmas ornaments or to go to their big chicken restaurants. I was there to meet with a farmer who's going to, who's growing organic soft white wheat for us and who, you know, um, we're going to buy something like 25 pounds of wheat berries from him this year. And then he's going to connect us with his cousin down the road who has organic spelt and his other friend who has organic rye. And so, you know, that's what we're working on. And then at the bakery, we have a couple of quite small mills that we will mill some of this or all of those berries on and use in our pastries and in our bread. And mainly what we're doing, Capri, is not we're making some new things, but we're just uh, redoing the recipes and the things that we already make and just making them taste better. So that's a big, big thing that we will continue to work on in the next five years. You talked a little bit earlier about you know, how people have had growth opportunities within the organization, starting like yourself, hourly workers. But then there's also, you know, this kind of community of businesses that have, that sprung out, um, from, uh, from the work that Zingerman's have, has done and the bakehouse and, you know, as well as the, the baking school. And, um, so I, I wanted you to kind of touch on, um, how, uh, the bakehouse and some of the work that you've done has, um, spawned other bakeries, um, because we're going to have a guest on later that that uh, has lived that experience. Yeah, so it's really um, something that I'm proud of that we have. I, I can't. It's like four to six people have left the bakery, Zingerman's Bakehouse, after you know pretty lengthy careers here, and decided to open up their own bakery. Of course, I'm happy when people want to stay, but you know I understand the joy of having your own place, and very much that's what I have. That's what I wanted to do, and so I completely understand when they decide that they want to go and do that on their own. Also, Zingerman's is a very particular kind of culture, and some people don't want to be constantly collaborating. Uh, with everyone within the bakery and then the entire Zingerman's community. So they sometimes decide to venture on their own. And um, you're going to speak with Shelby Kibler soon. And Shelby was, uh, you know, started as an hourly employee here at Zingerman's and then uh, became the manager of our bread bakery, was beloved. He decided he, you know, I don't want to tell his whole story because he can't. He left for a <laughs> yeah, while, came right, back and right. ran our school. But now he's owned his own bakery um, there was a, a man named John Sweet who opened up his own bakery in Chattanooga, Ch- Tennessee called Need Loves. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And then um, a, a woman named Shauna Sloan who's opened up her own bakery just uh, not even like 20 minutes from the bakehouse in a town here in Michigan called Celine. So many uh, people have, well, not many, but a handful have left and started their own, which is great. I think that um, I'm hoping that we've trained them well enough and given them business tools and baking knowledge and organizational knowledge that has helped them be successful in achieving their personal vision. Well, you obviously have done a, a great job, at least from where I sit. Um, and I can't wait to see what the future holds for, for you and um, for the Zingerman community of businesses and for all of these seeds uh, that you all have sown from, you know, right in Michigan and, and sounds like even across the country for new uh, food thank entrepreneurs. You so, much for so, Amy, me. thank really you for, for coming on the program and maybe we'll see you again. Coming up, we'll welcome Shelby Kibler the founder of Field and Fire Bakery and Cafe in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's a Zingerman's Bakehouse alum. 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. Our last guest this hour is Shelby Kibler. Shelby spent part of his career at Zingerman's Bakehouse. He also honed his baking and cooking skills in Portland, Oregon, and San Francisco. But he returned to Michigan and founded Field and Fire Bakery and Cafe in Grand Rapids, Michigan, back in 2013. Shelby, welcome to Eat Your Heartland Out. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, we love to hear uh, stories of folks that uh, get inspired by food and making food and baking, which is definitely a love of mine. So we want to hear your story. How did you get into uh, the world of baking? Okay, so I started uh, after college. So I went to um, U of M, like a lot of the people who uh, work at Zingerman's. And uh, I'm sorry for the listeners that don't know, University of Michigan is in Ann Arbor. So, and correct. as is everything else. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least enough, let's say. Certainly Zingerman's is there. And so yeah. my story started after that Ann Arbor experience. And um, I was working uh, a couple of jobs at the time and started to uh, bake and cook at home for the first time since I lived in the dorms for five years while I was at U of M going to school. And I got so excited by pretty much this the first loaves of bread that I baked out of my home oven. Uh, this, they were sourdough and the smell just kind of... Uh, made me feel rapture. And I was like, oh, this is like so uh, cool. <laughs> I am definitely going to just try to get a job in a bakery. So, uh, you know, right at that time, I was working as a barista at a cafe and doing some book shelving and uh, selling at the Barnes and Noble in my community. And uh, th those jobs, you know, weren't super satisfying in the same way that I could envision uh, getting into something like cooking and baking uh, that would offer me a lot of education and uh, really rich experiences. So that's kind of where it started was that the passion that I had uh, at home uh, baking. So I basically called all the bakers in my area at that time. Um, and th this was pretty much pre-internet. Uh, I wasn't heavily dependent upon the internet at that time. So I got out the yellow pages, if you'll remember those, and uh, just oh, called yes. all the bakeries in the bakery section, uh, found some guy who was willing to uh, get me in there for an interview and uh, 
that's where I ended up working for the next year. And uh, that's how it started, basically just kind of doing whatever he told me to do. And I found I really had a, a great passion for the work. Uh, and the learning was just out of this world. Uh, and he was a great pastry chef. So that first year I was, I was making pastries. Um, and then uh, after a year, I decided to move across the country and I landed in um, Portland, Oregon, where I had my first bread bakery job. Uh, and that job kind of taught me the ins and outs of the bread fermentation, which I really loved and, and felt very suited to. So kind of after that, can, can year, I stop, I let me stop you there. Let me just stop you there for one second, because I think sure. that's a really that brings up a very good question is, you know, uh, why do you feel like you because bread is a big part of, you know, your entire story. But what makes you feel like you're suited for the fermentation specifically? What 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 makes bread a calling for you? Uh, yeah, that is a great question. There's a lot wrapped up in that. Uh, it, for me, it feels like, you know, like during the period that we're speaking of, I did not think that I was going to be baking for the rest of my life. Honestly, I was just like, well, I need a job to live. Right. And so this is a great way of doing something that seems fun and exciting to me. But at that time, I think I identified as a poet and uh, anticipated doing something else with my life. So I didn't even identify as a baker really except for in the monetary sense where I was that's what I did for a living mm -hmm. so uh, I what I found was that I was skilled at it you know so my hands have a natural ability to handle dough and I did find the process of making bread really uh, super exciting so it it excited the uh, my intellect in that I could learn that this was a thing that, that people did and they spent their entire lives doing this uh, and learning the process that it took to make a high quality loaf of bread, which I hadn't mm -hmm. done at home. You know, I think I made an average looking loaf and uh, learning what the, the things were that could take a loaf from, you know, really mediocre to <laughs> excellent and kind of a life-changing piece of bread um, was really exciting for me. So that's kind of what I'm talking about was, there, you know, natural ability plus um, the in, in, intellectual excitement um, and then just kind of liking the hours and the, the weirdos I got to work with because, you know, like I was working the night oh, shift yeah. at a bakery where, you know, all these people were just so disparate from me. And we had made a motley crew that I found to be really fun and exciting. Uh, you know, th those types of things are what kind of drew me in. Um, and then if I may, you know, going on with that story, it was really my next job that yeah. changed everything for me. So that's when I landed at Zingerman. So I decided, oh, my God, I love fermentation so much. You know, I was really excited by making bread and I was discovering my passion for wine at that time in my life, like good wine. You know, like I grew up, grown up with kind of no exposure to good wine. And so I discovered it in my early 20s and found that I really enjoyed it and <laughs> started to visit uh, places in, in California uh, to, you know, go wine tasting and stuff like that. And so when I landed at Zinger, I moved back to Ann Arbor thinking I would go and take some science class. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cause I was like, well, did, why don't did, I they, did the science of right? bread? Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like I, I moved back to Ann Arbor thinking that it would be easier, but then when I got back there, I took I signed up for science, right? So I took a chemistry class and a biology class. And these were prerequisites that I was going to need if I was going to get into, you know, kind of fermentation science. Um, but then uh, I 
found that U of M is fairly expensive if you've already graduated and you don't have scholarships or anything like that, which I did earlier in my career. So like, you know, when I was at school originally, I got a lot of help, financial aid from the state and the uh, other sources, you know, scholarships and stuff. So uh, then I was like, oh my gosh, I need to pay off this debt I just racked up by taking a semester of courses. Uh, and I had already got the job at Zingerman's anyways as a baker since I had a couple of years of experience by then. So that's what kicked off this process of becoming what I see as a baker, you know, like the, the baker who that's their passion, you know, like they are, they, they feel like they're put on this earth to do that work. And, and so that happened for me during the next couple of years while I was employed at Zingerman's and specifically after I took the manager job, um, you know, my bread production manager had left at some point to go to law school. Uh, and uh, my boss uh, very sweetly invited me to apply for it. And I did so. And he hired me as the production manager. So that was kind of what kicked off this growth period and the period at which I would say I identified as a baker and committed to the craft to the point where I didn't see a future for myself going forward that didn't involve baking. So how long ago was that then? So yeah, that, were, that, that was in 1997 that I landed at Zingerman's. Okay, for the so first... we, it's, it's uh, quite a long time then. We're talking 25 years. Right. Correct. Yes. So uh, 25 years. Yeah. And so I spent six years at Zingerman's during that, uh, uh, the early days uh, of my baking career. And during those uh, six, I was managing the baker, the, the bread department of that bakery for, for four years. Uh, that's when I, I started taking professional classes. Uh, so my boss would send me to take a week long class and uh, I would just absorb as much as I could. You know, we've had some really great resources in our, our country uh, by teachers who just are really passionate and knowledgeable and share the, their skills and craft uh, with younger people who are starting to learn. And so I took a couple of those classes and I did some extensive traveling. So Zingerman's uh, offers a a staff scholarship opportunity so you can apply for a scholarship and get some money to do something that seems exciting to you that might then uh, turn around and benefit the, the company itself. So I applied to get some money to travel to France and I I ended up getting it. So I went to France and spent a couple of weeks there baking. Oh, wow. Uh, Really important uh, mentors. And, you know, I guess uh, the people who I look up to even to this day as bakers. uh, So I got to do that experience and then, um, you know, just kind of traveled a lot during the six years that I was uh, in that bread department at Zingerman. So the, the transformation, I would say, came during that six years, uh, specifically, you know, as manager, someone who had committed to doing the work of managing the bakery, which is hard work. I'm not going to lie. I really I was can imagine. challenged by a lot of the work. Um, but the reward was that it it kind of opened up the entire world to me. And I felt like I could do anything after uh, that six year stint. That's amazing. I mean, you're, I, you are inspiring, I think, all of us to go and bake uh, and work weird hours with the weirdos um, because you never know what's going to happen next. But there came a point where, you know, you wanted to move on and do your own thing, right? So after the six years uh, uh, that I spent at the bakery, 
I had decided I wanted to move to California. And so I did that. I gave my bosses who were Frank and Amy uh, a year's notice and told them, look, I really love working for you, but my my heart's telling me to move to California uh, and experience something different there. Uh, so I spent four years in California. And then um, after I had worked there for a couple of years, I came back to Michigan to visit my family. And I stopped off at the bakery to see Frank and Amy because I miss them. You know, they, they're <laughs> some of the most amazing people that I've ever met. And I just was I, I always was fond of them and kept in touch. Uh, and they were like, oh, my gosh, while you were gone, we started this baking school and we need somebody to come run it. Uh, we think you might be really skilled at that. Would you consider moving back and taking this job? And uh, so essentially, yes, I, I decided that that sounded like a great opportunity. So I left California, moved back to Michigan. And then uh, for the next six years, I taught baking classes at the Bake School, which was the school that Zingerman's had started. Uh, offering baking classes to any and all um, uh, every day of the week, pretty much. So I spent six years doing that before I decided it was time for me to open up my own bakery. And then that journey begins uh, uh, in 2013. That's when we opened up Field and Fire. So my wife and I, uh, who had a one-year-old child at that time, moved up to Grand Rapids uh, so that we were far enough from Zingerman's not to have to compete with that exceptional bakery, um, but also in a place where we felt like there was a market for what I had in mind, which was, you know, bread and pastries done my way, which is different than, you know, anybody I'd worked for, but certainly much more of an amalgamation of all the things that I had ever seen anybody do. And, you know, thankfully, Zingerman's gave me an opportunity for 12 years to study the craft and to get really good at doing uh, what they do there, which is amazing work. Uh, so I felt prepared in a way that uh, I honestly didn't feel nervous to start my own bakery. I was pretty excited. Mm -hmm. And that's where it kicked off was the the birth of Field and Fire happened in Ann Arbor while Julie and I were trying to, my wife, Julie, trying to come up with a name for <laughs> this bakery, decided to open up a wood-fired bakery because I had never done that as a profession, right? So I'd worked at bakeries where we had a wood-fired oven before, um, but uh, certainly hadn't run a production bakery with only wood-fired ovens. And so that oh, seemed wow. like a really great way of becoming an expert in that area. So that's what we did. We opened up uh, Field and Fire in 2013, focusing on sourdough breads baked in a wood-fired oven, uh, made with all organic uh, flours, nuts, seeds, grains, you know, all everything organic that we could possibly find. And then... Um, done with long, slow fermentation, which is something I learned uh, to really honor at Zingerman's, and then um, croissants. So I had fallen in love with making croissants uh, during my stint, uh, my last six years at Zingerman's. So uh, I definitely wanted to offer those to this area. And so I came up with a really great recipe for croissants. And so when we opened, our menu was just bread and croissants. And, and you know, now, obviously, it's been nine years. Hey, since they, the they nothing wrong with that. I mean, no. I, I'm totally fine with living on just bread and croissants. I mean, if, if you know, yeah. twist my arm. I don't blame you. Yeah, it's so good. So good. So that's what we've been doing, you know, for nine years. And, uh, you know, my, my approach is 
I'm sure that uh, Zingerman's is such an important part of where I came from. And I, you know, I feel like I look at it the same as they do in terms of how do I approach this product uh, with integrity and make it to be the best version of itself that I possibly can. Uh, and I really want to honor my past and all of the bread and pastry heroes that have taught me. You know, I feel like what I am truly in my life is a good student. You know, like I, I recognize when somebody's doing special something special and I can like watch them do it, uh, try to pick up the the subtle beauty in what they are doing, and then I can think about that as I'm trying to design my own products and processes to try to. Uh, create some version that isn't like, you know, I don't look at it as stealing or borrowing really just like, oh my gosh, I learned it from this person or these, this group of people, how amazing their process was. And then I tried it and I found that it worked for me to do this, you know? And so kind of uh, just want to honor the fact that I didn't come up with anything really. I just learned from all these humans that were so good and passionate. And so my take on it is, is a blend of all of that plus experience, you know, the experience of trying it out and failing and coming back with fresh eyes and trying something slightly different. Um, because with fermentation, you know, you can never get to the point where it is predictable, you know, <laughs> just like never going to be that that right. way. So uh, I love it. Uh, I still love it today. I, I'm mystified by gluten-free bread. I'm trying to improve our gluten-free bread. We only make one. And uh, half the time it comes out in ways that I d didn't predict. Right? So like, I'm, I actually am very excited by that project, even though it, I feel like a failure every time I pull it out of the oven and it doesn't look the way I wanted it to. Uh, but honestly, that's part of the magic for me is the unpredictability yeah. and just like the aliveness of the medium that we choose to work with in this industry. Well, and fermentation is literally alive, right? I mean, you know, what I also hear here um, from what, you, you know, you've said about, oh, it's, you know, it's really, I'm just learning from all these people and, and whatnot. I, I hear a humbleness that I think is, you know, very uh, synonymous to many in the Midwest of, you know, being humble about, you know, one's talents. Uh, and that kind of at least came through in a little bit that you just said. Uh, and, and then, you know, talking about that, that amalgamation of so many different traditions. It's another thing that I feel is, is very, you know, quintessentially Midwestern, you know, one of the things that we struggle with on this program or one that we explore constantly is, you know, what does it mean? What is Midwestern food? And I dedicated a whole lot of this, um, the early days of, of this show two years ago of, you know, what makes Midwestern food, et cetera. Now, while you're not describing something specifically Midwestern, what I'm hearing is that, you know, Midwestern Midwestern foodways are ones that, you know, are very, they're, they're hard to define because there's so many different factors that go into it, whether it's local agriculture, whether it's the, you know, great diversity of the 12 states that are in it, um, you know, and, and all the different, um, you know, immigrant groups and indigenous communities that all bring their own twist. And somehow you put all those things together and you have something new and unique. Um, and, um, you've managed to take all of your experiences and bring them all together and make something unique, um, and, uh, in, in a wood fired oven, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, where can folks find you if they are visiting up in Grand Rapids? 
We have two locations, uh, both with the field and fire name. So uh, either one is a great uh, spot to visit. The first one uh, that we opened was in the downtown market in Grand Rapids. And of course, if you're looking us up online or on your phone, you can just try our website, uh, which is fieldandfire.com spelled out. Um, And then uh, so we're in the downtown market and that's where the bakery is. That's where we still have that wood fired oven. And then... um, uh, the cafe opened a few years after the bakery, and it is uh, at 820 Monroe. Uh, and this is uh, has become for us a restaurant. So we do breakfast and lunch there in addition to serving coffee and pastries. Uh, and really, uh, really happy with what's happening at the cafe. You know, all these local ingredients uh, that we're turning into well thought through food, uh, trying to focus on health. And, you know, that's a big part of what we do with our breads too. try to make sure that we're making them healthy for people and not just uh, uh, using a bunch of white flour. So we've, we've always yeah. been grainy in our approach. And so trying to follow through with that same passion to make the food that we make be healthful uh, and also, you know, healthful for the earth, you know, buying organic and and local really helps uh, us to support farmers who are doing things in a way that we can feel good about. And uh, then we just try to make sure that uh, part of uh, the, the method that we are using to approach a dish is how can we make this as healthy as possible while being uh, as amazing to taste as, as we possibly can? So, yeah, just really pretty excited about that. So uh, those two locations and, uh, you know, I think we're we're, we're we're currently looking to expand. You know, we've we've outgrown both of the, f- the physical spaces we're in. So it's going to I think in, in the next couple of years, we're going to have a. Uh, a transformation of our business into a larger space. And I'm really looking forward to that. But uh, for now, those are the two places to check out here in Grand Rapids. Well, uh, you know, there's a lot to check out. I just looked at your menu, actually, and I'm really impressed by a few of the things on the uh, on the menu um, that seem pretty unique, uh, including, uh, I think, a cruffin I saw and then a curry Caesar, which sounds really delicious. Um, but like I said, you can really hear the passion and obviously that passion is combined with purpose. Um, as you've just described all the things you're trying to do to make sure that things are healthy, um, both for, um, those who eat and, uh, the earth that provides that food. So Shelby, thank you for sharing your story with us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Capri. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.